You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My, a bi-weekly podcast about healthcare law in the United States, brought to you by the Healthcare Group at Kroll & Mooring. I am Joe Records. And I'm Pyle Nanavati, and today we will be discussing healthcare companies and what they need to know about FCA dismissals under the Granston Memo. We're excited today to have John Brennan in the studio recording with us. All right, John, thanks so much for being in the studio today. I want to talk a little bit about the False Claims Act, the FCA, and what your feelings are toward the Department of Justice. Joe, thanks for having me here. It's a beautiful studio. And uh, is that the Capitol I see outside the window there? That is a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> sight. Thanks very much. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here today. And I want to say that it's not often that I feel this way, but right now I'm kind of feeling a little sorry for the Department of Justice. Sorry for the Department of Justice. Yeah, it's not normal that I would be sorry for the Department of Justice having practiced healthcare fraud and abuse law for many, many years now. The Department of Justice is usually on the other side, and so is HHS OIG, and it's hard for me to muster any sympathy for either one of those agencies, which often gives my clients heartburn or worse. But there was a case recently that was decided in the Southern District of Illinois that did make me feel sorry for the DOJ. You may know, Joe, that under the False Claims Act, whistleblowers, relators can bring cases on behalf of the government, and the government can intervene in those cases or not intervene in those cases as they see fit. But the government may also dismiss one of those cases under their 373032A authority. It looks to me like the statute is pretty clear that that dismissal authority is clean, and it's up to the government to decide when it sees a false claims case that it doesn't think ought to go forward. However, in this most recent case in the Southern District of Illinois, the government just lost not only a motion to dismiss, but a motion on reconsideration where they wanted the judge in that case, Judge Giandel, to dismiss the case because the government felt like the theory of the case was not worthy of false claims adjudication. The government argued that it had what I'll call an unfettered right to dismiss. It told the judge that it had looked at the case and decided that it ought to be dismissed, but the judge wouldn't let him, and I feel sorry for the department. The judge decided to invade that judgment and find instead that she wasn't happy with the investigation that the department undertook or with its cost-benefit analysis as to why the case should not go forward and denied the motion to dismiss. What's even more disheartening is that the department was seeking to dismiss the case because it was based on a theory of kickback culpability that has been debunked by HHS OIG through advisory opinions which state essentially that not all kickbacks are bad and when remuneration is being provided say to a patient to enhance the quality of care in this case the allegation was that pharmaceutical companies were providing patients with additional help in handling the drug. That was the theory of the case. Department of Justice didn't like it, didn't want to go forward on that theory, but the judge rather dishearteningly said to the department, you haven't looked at this well enough, and this looks like a classic kickback to me. And so in this case that just came up, CMIZ-NHCA, VUCB in the Southern District of Illinois, the reconsideration request was denied. 
you probably remember about a, well, maybe about a year and a half ago, the Granston memo came out in the Department of Justice where DOJ decided that they wanted to take a new look at the piles and piles of false claims cases that were in progress and on the books. And Michael Granston said to his commercial civil litigators that they should be more aggressive in dismissing false claims cases that didn't have any merit. Back in the old days, up until the Granston memo, when a whistleblower filed a false claims case, typically the government would either decide to intervene in the case, in which case the government would take over the false claims case, or not intervene, decline to intervene, and the relator could go on his merry way or her merry way to prosecute the case themselves. In the Granston memo, what the Department of Justice has now trained and encouraged its prosecutors to do is if they see a false claims case that they think ought to be dismissed under their 3730C2A authority, they ought to go ahead and dismiss the case and end it so that the relator won't have to go forward or the relator won't be allowed to go forward. The government won't have to hang around and participate in a case that's meritless. And defendants who would otherwise have to deal with a poor case brought by a relator wouldn't have to do that. Now, in the Granson memo, he gave the department some criteria for when a case ought to be dismissed, and those criteria are not surprising. If the government felt like the case would run counter to agency policy, or if the case were some sort of a serial false claims case that didn't make any sense, or if there were any other government reasons not to go forward with the case, too costly perhaps, not a good use of DOJ resources. Those were guidelines that were put in the memo for the DOJ to use to decide when to dismiss a case. This sounds pretty reasonable so far. What you're talking about is a memo saying if a case should be dismissed, then go ahead and dismiss it. Not an overreach, I don't think. So how's this going wrong? So before the memo, I think DOJ dismissed a small, small percentage of false claims cases, maybe under 1% of all false claims cases. But now the government is taking this to heart, and they are seeing cases which they think ought to be dismissed. And what the problem is, is the question of whether or not the DOJ can dismiss cases under its 3-2-A authority under the False Claims Act with an unfettered discretion or whether the courts have a role in deciding whether or not DOJ is able to dismiss the case. And what's happened is that there has been a split of decision-making at the circuit level, where in the D.C. Circuit, for example, in the Swift case, the court has ruled that the government does indeed have an unfettered discretion to dismiss these cases. However, in the Ninth Circuit, in the Sequoia Orange case, the court has decided that the government needs to be put to some sort of test. They need to be able to articulate that there is a government purpose in dismissing the case and that there's a rational relationship between that purpose and the case itself. And so there's that disagreement among circuits now with regard to whether or not DOJ can do this on its own or whether the court should impose some sort of test as to whether or not the dismissal ought to go forward. This issue has come to its head in the last six months or so. There's an entity called the National Healthcare 
analysis group, NHCAG, which is one of those created entities where folks invest in the entity to bring whistleblower cases, bring false claims cases, and then potentially reap the benefits of those cases. Where we are now is that there's the split between the circuits. DOJ is continuing to try to aggressively, if that's the right word, find other false claims cases that ought to be dismissed. DOJ argues, and I agree, that they have an unfettered right under 32A, 3730 of the False Claims Act, which says the Department of Justice or the government may dismiss any case brought by a relator, who after all is bringing the case on behalf of the government, and that it's up to the government to do that if they want to do that. And although there needs to be a court appearance or a hearing before the government exercises this right, I don't believe that judges have any role in making that decision. I think the reason for a hearing, and there needs to be a hearing, is to let the relator know what's going on. And if the relator can talk the government out of dismissing the case, so be it. But frankly, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of Swift and not a fan of, of Sequoia Orange. Could we get elementary for a moment? And uh, that's, that's my middle name. <laughs> Thank you, John Elementary Brennan. Yeah. Uh, we know that the FCA is a significant body of law for any entity interacting with the government. In healthcare, there's the FCA, and then we also talk a lot about the anti-kickback statute and the relationship between those two laws. Could you just give us a, a few minutes on how it is that a healthcare entity needs to be concerned about the FCA and the yeah. Ransom Memo? Sure. Let me start with the False Claims Act. The False Claims Act is the key weapon in fraud and abuse prosecution and enforcement. Obviously, it's a civil statute, and it is the statute through which a whistleblower or quitam relator can bring a case against a healthcare provider, say, for example, for filing false claims. When a whistleblower brings a case under the False Claims Act, then the government has the right to take a look at that case while it's under seal and make a decision whether or not it wants to intervene in that case. The false claim would the be false. under a federal health care program. That's right. And a, and a false claim would be the filing of a claim which is false or fraudulent. And a claim can be false or fraudulent on a number of different bases, one of which is if the data and the information in the claim is false, the price is wrong, the services weren't provided, whatever, then that could be a false claims. But a false claim could also be a false claim if the certification that you sign when you file the false claim is false as well. And when you file a claim for payment, you certify when you file the claim that the claim is being filed in accordance with all applicable law, including the kickback statute. So if you file a claim that is tainted by a kickback violation, then the relator's argument is that the claim is false because it was filed under the cloud of a kickback. That's what the argument is here in the prescription drug cases, that when the claim is filed for payment for these drugs that are being provided to the patient, that claim has been tainted because the patient has been provided a kickback through these additional hotlines and 
education and training services that are being provided along with the drug? It's a good question. A claim can be false based on the violation of some other statute. So we're seeing litigation that's getting into detail about particularly kickback claims under False Claims Act lawsuits. That's right. And, you know, in the old days, before Obamacare and before ACOs are being formed and continuity of care was being endorsed, if you looked at the literal terms of the kickback statute, which says that any remuneration essentially provided to anybody in return for recommending or arranging for or using an item or a service that's covered under the healthcare reimbursement laws, any remuneration could be viewed as a kickback. That's the literal interpretation of the kickback law. However, that's really never been the case. And there has always been situations where something could be remuneration, something of value, and it could encourage a referral, but there would be so many other reasons why that remuneration would be a good thing that it should not be prosecuted under the kickback statute. And in recent years, the OIG, as I said earlier, has made clear that through advisory opinions and other edicts, that they're going to take a more careful view of when these kinds of things that are of value to the patient enhance care and ought to be encouraged. Or another example would be financial relationships between healthcare providers that encourage quality care or encourage continuity of care. Not everything is evil that involves remuneration in the uh, healthcare world. And so what's happening is sort of a, on the one hand, the DOJ has been encouraged to dismiss more false claims cases. Then, on the other hand, the OIG is saying, you know, some of these alleged kickback cases, we're not interested in. In fact, we think they're good things. When I said I felt sorry for DOJ, what they're trying to do is get rid of false claims cases that are meritless, and not only meritless, but run counter to healthcare policy as espoused by the OIG, which is trying to say, let's work together here to provide good health care for our patients. If you're going to provide a hotline or some education and training with this pharmaceutical product, that's a good thing. The OIG is taking an approach of we're thinking about healthcare policy and addressing in a cogent way the way that the anti-kickback statute, the way the federal fraud and abuse laws apply to arrangements and interactions between healthcare entities. And then you have under false claims cases, private litigants providing a little bit of a fly in the ointment there, where OIG is saying this is an okay type of arrangement, but there's still a lawsuit against a healthcare company for that type of arrangement. Is that right? That's right. These entities are very, very, very good at data analysis, theories of kickback, theories of false claims. That's what they're in business for. Now, I don't know if when the False Claims Act was initially enacted back when I was a kid during the Civil War. <laughs> I remember the first false claims case. It was 1863. But nonetheless, I'm, you were just a young I was just a tot. I was just a tot. I fought for the West in the Civil War. (laughs) That's how nuts I was. But this is a business. And these entities are created now to data mine, to look at possible new theories of kickback activity, 
to gain the benefit of the, you know, the treble damages and the fines and penalties under the False Claims Act. And until the government, DOJ, has only recently begun dismissing these cases, if you were a defendant in one of these cases and the government just declined to intervene, that means or that meant that you were still stuck with the relator. And as you know, these fines and penalties and treble damages can add up to millions and millions of dollars. These professional relators are well-heeled. They know what they're doing. They're smart. And so without the DOJ being able to pull the plug with regard to these cases with dismissals, I'm not saying on every false claims case, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that DOJ, in my judgment anyway, ought to have that leeway and certainly ought to be able to further the policy of the agency, which is one of the criteria in the Granson memo, if we're not going to pursue false claims cases that run counter to an agency policy, which these kinds of cases would, given the kinds of remuneration we're talking about. I think that it'll be the Wild West out there unless courts continue to recognize DOJ's right to go forward with these dismissals. So in practice, then, would the Sequoia Orange rational government purpose test actually prevent or set a high standard for the DOJ to say this is not the relator's position and their theory of the law is not consistent with agency policy? Pilot, it doesn't sound like a high standard. And uh, to me, one of the lessons here that we should learn, I think, first, DOJ knows now that there are two standards. DOJ prosecutors are told to argue both standards in their motions to dismiss. That is both the uh, Sequoia rational relationship standard and the unfettered right standard, just to sort of cover their bases. To me, rational relationship, the most obvious ones to me, seem to be cost-related, that it's not worth it to go forward with this case. We have limited resources. We can't use them on this case. And to me, the second one would be, and this would be inconsistent with agency policy. Both those, to me, seem prevalent in the cases that we've been talking about. What was distressing about the Southern District of Illinois case is that the government did make those arguments. Now, the one thing that I worry about is for our clients. Oftentimes, our clients are the subject of quitam cases and relator cases that have numerous counts. Some of them, if you look at a False Claims Act complaint, You'll see some of them that you kind of know are the real complaint, and then you'll see other counts in a False Claims Act complaint that are just there because the whistleblower wants to be thorough, perhaps, to use a kind word, or to throw other theories into the case to cover their bases, whatever. And now you're sitting down, and the government does not like the case. The government would not intervene, but you want the government to go further. You don't want the government just to not intervene because then you're still stuck with relator. You'd like to get the government to dismiss the case because if the government dismisses, it goes away and the relator is left with nothing. But then you have this complaint that has numerous allegations in it. 
And so what you want to be sure of when you're talking with the government in the form of settlement and resolution, if the government is with you and they want to dismiss, you pretty much have to say to the government, now, have you looked at all the, the causes of action here? Have you investigated this goofy one on page 12 that's there? Because if you seek to dismiss, and if the judge says, you know, have you looked at this kickback allegation on page 14, if the government says, nah, not really, I mean, that's no big deal, the judge might say, well, then you haven't met your burden of investigating this case and finding a rational relationship between your dismissal and some government purpose. Go back and look at this. Now, interestingly enough, in the Illinois case that we've been talking about, this UCB case, the government told the judge that they'd spent 1,500 hours looking at the case before they decided to dismiss. They told the judge that they would spend countless more hours in this case if the relator went forward because the government would have to provide discovery, would have to provide witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. The judge said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. On the record here, you, you haven't quite got me on this yet. And so the reconsideration was denied. We'll see what the government does there. They may take that up, but, but it's that kind of a burden that some courts are placing on DOJ, and that places sort of an additional burden on defendants who would be overjoyed in a normal course with a government dismissal. See, that was, that was my next question. For a, yeah. for a defendant healthcare company yeah. who's not just looking for a dismissal from the government, now it seems like a defendant would need to look for a dismissal that looks like it would stand up in court under scrutiny from a judge who needs to be convinced of the government's rationale. Yeah. A court that follows Sequoia Orange, yes. That court would want to understand what the government purpose was that was being furthered and whether there was a rational relationship between furtherance of that purpose and the dismissal. So practically speaking, what can defendant healthcare companies do to engage with the DOJ in trying to help them answer that question? When the Granson memo came out, potential defendants were excited because finally DOJ was getting clear authority and criteria through which it could reach a decision that a case would be dismissed. And so back in January of 18, you'd read the Granston memo and you'd look at the criteria in it for dismissal and you'd try to figure out whether your case had any of those criteria. Inconsistent with an agency purpose, too costly, not a viable case, whatever it might be, you'd go to the government and you'd see whether or not you could make not just a non-intervention argument, which is not bad because it puts the relator on its own, but a dismissal argument so that the case would go away completely. So that was elation for a while. Now, when you read the Sequoia Orange and the other cases and you want the government to dismiss, it seems to me not only do you have to argue that the case meets a criterion or criteria of the Granson memo, but you've got to make sure that the government has done its homework and that if the government is inclined to dismiss and there's any kind of a worry that either a relator or the judge will say, well, government, tell me what you did before you made this decision, that the government has to be prepared 
to toe that line. So when you're negotiating with the government, I want to talk to the government about that. And I want to say to the government in this false claims complaint, what are you going to say here? Can we help you if you need to argue that this case is not consistent with agency policy? Can we help you provide the policy that it's not consistent with? We want you to win. So what I would say is if you can get to DOJ on the point of dismissal, you want to continue to buddy up with the government and make sure they win. So what's the, the D.C. Circuit is the Swift case, right? That's and right. The Ninth Circuit is the Sequoia Orange. Right. Um, it looks like at least one court in Illinois and the Seventh Circuit is following the Ninth. I mean, I, I think you said in Texas we're seeing more of a D.C. Circuit application. Do we have a count on where the cir- circuits are coming down? It, it's, it's pretty early. It's hard to count. There were something like 11 cases in Texas. Some of them have gone through a magistrate who has recommended the unfettered decision rationale. One or two others are not clear right now. There have been other scattered decisions around the country that have taken each of those standards. There's one in Massachusetts, one in Pennsylvania. They're just kind of bubbling up now in the district courts. There's probably about 13 or more cases that are considering this issue right now. The key cases continue to be Swift and Sequoia Orange. But as I said, as the government employs the Granston Memo more and more, and the Granston Memo is a year and a half old now, as they imply them more and more, and especially when they're clashing with QUITAM relators like NHCA, very, as I said, very experienced, well-heeled, those cases will, I think, bubble up. Now, in some of the cases where the government has filed a motion to dismiss, NHCA has dropped the case. So they've sort of whittled away some of their cases from the bunch. But I would say that it's still, in my judgment, the law is not unsettled. But in the district courts and in many jurisdictions, it seems to be unsettled as to where this will all end up. John, not necessarily in just one word, but if you could put a cap on this, if our listeners are going to remember one thing to take away from this podcast, what should it be? So let me summarize by pointing out a few takeaways that I feel are important, and they are several. One is that there is encouragement out there in terms of DOJ's willingness to dismiss false claims cases where there wasn't that encouragement before. Secondly, I would say that I'm heartened by the OIG and its efforts to clarify what the right policy should be with respect to providing quality and continuity of care to patients, even when there is some modicum of remuneration that is something of value going to the patient. I guess I have three things. The third thing I would say is that we need to watch this space carefully to see how the courts react to the government's, DOJ's, more aggressive efforts to dismiss these cases. And frankly, if you're a healthcare defendant, a provider, root for the government, root for the DOJ to be able to dismiss these cases. It makes sense to me. I think the statute is clear on it. And that will sort of separate the wheat from the chaff, I think, a little bit and make our lives clearer and a bit easier as potential false claims defendants. And I think we'll leave it there. Thank you.
John, thanks so much for being here. Uh, really appreciate your insight today. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Thank you.